Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Tonight, we're recording our next uh, edition of the Journal Club, and with us, we have uh, Dr. Bill Weiss. He's our resident professor here at the Journal Club, and Bill, typically, I'm looking at you through a uh, computer screen, and I got to tell you, I, I like this a lot better. You're a lot better looking in person. <laughs> so. Usually it's the opposite, I hear. So. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to this. You know, um, tonight we're actually recording at the Tri-State Nutrition Conference, and that's why we're here in, in, in person. Um, and then we've also got, um, this is the 2022 uh, Tri-State Nutrition Conference. I've also invited one of the organizers, uh, Dr. Maurice Eastridge from the Ohio State University and uh, Maurice, uh, I, I was going to ask you what's in your glass tonight, but looks like you're our designated driver. That's right. Okay. Pure clear. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Um, why don't you start off by telling us uh, a little bit about the Tri-State Nutrition Conference and then kind of give the audience an idea of why they should come to the 2023 conference. Yeah, great, Scott. Thanks very much for having me here and spotlighting the Tri-State Dairy Nutrition Conference. This is our 30th conference, and <clears throat> so we're very proud of that as Michigan State and, and Purdue University and Ohio State University have worked together for 30 years to host this uh, program in conjunction with our industry support. That's really what's made this, this possible. So looking at next year, uh, it's April 17th, 18th, and 19th back here in Fort Wayne. All 30 years we've been in, in Fort Wayne, been a tremendous uh, central location, but we also draw you know, from Canada and several other countries as well. It's great to be back in person. Uh, 2019 was our uh, last time here uh, until this year. In 2020, we had to cancel. Everybody knows why. And then in 2021, we went virtual. And so it's really good to be back. Everyone seems to be excited. Our exhibitors are, are uh, back up in number of like uh, 50, I think we have around 54 exhibitors. Uh, attendance has been good. And so we're excited. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Well, we thank you for coming uh, here tonight. We know you've got some uh, other things you got to do, and you won't be sticking around for the whole uh, podcast, but we appreciate you stopping by. Well, thank you, and, and thanks for Ball Kim and the mini symposium you did uh, yesterday that went really well and supporting the whole conference. Yeah, appreciate it. You're very welcome. Bill, um, so what we do here at the uh, Journal Club is Bill picks a, a paper once a month, and we get together with the, the authors and uh, – uh, professors with the papers, and we review it. I guess these are a little kinder review than maybe some that take place in traditional uh, universities, but why don't you kind of give us a background on the paper that you've selected for today and why you selected it, and then maybe after that introduce uh, the guests that you brought with you today. <clears throat> okay, uh, Scott, the, the paper I picked is the abbreviated title is basically Reducing DCAD on lacta Lactation Performance nutrient digestibility, and ammonia emissions from manure. I picked this for a couple reasons. One is we all know environmental issues are only going to become greater and greater in dairy. And this is a new, new way to reduce that that really hasn't been investigated to a great extent. And then just the idea of feeding lower decad to lactating cows, you know, that's adverse to everything we were taught. So it's, I think, just a, a new approach, something different. The, the other reason is I am well, well familiar with the, the main author of this paper. I worked with him for many, many years, uh, Dr. Dr. Lee. And then this is the uh, master's project of another one where another student, a former student we have here with us as well, Haley. Uh, Haley. So I'll turn it back over to them to kind of introduce themselves. Yeah, I'm glad to have you guys with us. But, you know, Bill, I forgot to ask what, what's in your glass tonight. Okay. I have a spotted cow beer, which I get to drink about once a year when I visit Wisconsin. So yeah. this is a two-time-a-year time. Yeah, spotted cow in Indiana. That's awesome. Uh, Dr. Lee, what's in your glass tonight? Uh, I got the spotted cow as well. Uh, uh, this uh, is the first time that I tried this one, and it's pretty good. Super. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, give us a little bit of uh, background about yourself. Um, my name is Chan Hee Lee. Uh, you can call me Chan. Um, I'm an uh, associate professor in the uh, Department of Animal Science at Ohio State University. I started uh, my position in 2015. Uh, I got my PhD at uh, Penn State University. I had some postdoc experience in Canada for two years, and I started my position in 2015. 
And uh, uh, my research area is uh, dairy nutrition and nutrient management. And this work uh, that we are going to talk about is related to dairy nutrition and nutrient management as well. Super. And Haley, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what are you doing with your, uh, your, your great Ohio State education? <laughs> sure thing. Uh, so this was my master's project, of course. I finished it up in May of 2021, uh, of course, in dairy nutrition. And uh, now I'm still with Ohio State University, but in a little bit of a different capacity. I am the agriculture and natural resources educator in Ohio's foremost dairy county, Wayne County, uh, Ohio. So I'm glad to be putting it to good use. That's for darn sure. Super. And I'd be remiss if I didn't introduce my co-host, Dr. Clay Zimmerman. Uh, thank you for joining us once again. And what's in your glass tonight? I have the usual. I have an angry orchard. Yeah, good. I'd be disappointed if you didn't, Clay. Yes. All right. Yes. Very well. Tonight's Pubcast Toast is brought to you by NitroSure Precision Release Nitrogen. Maximize room and microflora with the consistent release of NitroSure to turn up the dial on rumen efficiency and productivity. Visit balchem.com to learn more. And with that, uh, Bill, I'll turn it over to you to, to lead us through the discussions. And I don't, uh, John and Haley, answer whoever is appropriate. I'm not going to pick out names, but I guess we always want to start out, what's the hypothesis of this experiment? What's the the idea behind it and your hypothesis. So maybe I can start. <clears throat> so we came up with the, the idea uh, for this project uh, because we always uh, have been uh, thinking about how we reduce the environmental impact from dairy production. Um, I think uh, my, one of my interests was to reduce the ammonia emission from manure because uh, we talked about a lot of gas emissions from cow and from manure. Um, uh, we, we recently talked a lot about methane emission, but I think uh, if you look at the dairy contribution to total gas emission in the United States, ammonia is number one uh, from dairy cows, uh, manure. So uh, I have been thinking of how we can reduce uh, ammonia emission from manure. Um, maybe it's possible if we can manipulate a diet and we can manipulate uh, manure characteristics, then it's possible to reduce the gas emissions from manure. My target was uh, ammonia, and that's why, how I came up with this idea. And again, maybe for the audience, the principle behind DCAD and reducing ammonia, what's the, the mode of action? So, um, the, this is the interesting part. You probably saw quite a bit of papers about DCAT for uh, prepartum cows or lactating cows. For lactating cows, uh, preferentially, uh, we try to increase the DCAT to improve the production of dairy cows. But uh, this idea that we uh, had is to reduce the DCAT for lactating cows because if you reduce the DCAT, then there will be more uh, anions supply, then that create the imbalance between anions and uh, cations, and that increase the uh, uh, hydrogen uh, ions in blood, and that should be excreted in urine. That is how urine is urine pH is decreased. Uh, if that is true, uh, if that is the case, and if we can decrease quite a bit of urine pH, then probably it's a good opportunity to reduce ammonia emission. Uh, we also expected some negative effect on production uh, because that's what, what have been studied. Uh, reducing DCAT have some negative effect on production, for example, milk fat, uh, di uh, the feed digestibility, um, uh, or uh, dry matter intake as well. Um, but we, we, what we want to do, we wanted to try some diet manipulation to reduce, uh, uh, to manipulate manure characteristic and reduce the uh, ammonia emission. Uh, to show the opportunity, this is another opportunity that we can try to reduce the gas emission from manure. Ali, can you maybe, why, why would pH and ammonia be it, manure ammonia? What's the, what's the connection there? Yeah, so that was actually a, kind of a high point, and I'm glad I was able to bring this research into some of my 
recent fertilizer sessions um, with manure being so incredibly important right now. So pH and ammonia are tightly tied together in the way that by reducing pH of manure or the manure slurry, we're able to decrease the amount of ammonia volatilization simply through decreasing the amount of ammonium ions that can shift back and forth between ammonium and ammonia. So by dropping that pH further away from 9, or its pKa, uh, we're, we're able to decrease the number of ammonium ions in the manure uh, from transferring to ammonia and then further volatilizing into the ammonia uh, it, gaseous state that we can smell when we walk into a barn or we're on the manure lagoon. You're basically trapping. You're not reducing the amount of ammonia produced. You're just trapping, trapping it. Trapping it, yeah. Like so you, another point is, if we trap the ammonia, we can increase the value of manure as fertilizer. That yeah. was another point. Mm -hmm. And right now, that's a very, very big point. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so you're trapping the ammonia as ammonium? Correct. In the manure? Yep. Correct, yes. And this, uh, there's two projects in this, and I want to emphasize or spend most time on the cow project. But you did what I call a proof of concept experiment in vitro. Can you briefly discuss what you did and what you found? But again, I, I want to most of the time I want to talk about the cow experiment. Sure thing. Did you want me to start on that? Yeah, yep, All right. Sure. So sounds good. So uh, proof of concept. Um, we essentially took manure samples from uh, from four different cows and. Com uh, composited this manure together, I should say the feces, and then the urine separately um, so that we could create a, a sort of homogenous mix of cows all on the same diet. So from that, uh, the urine was a you know typical 8.5 pH. Uh, feces was a little bit less than that in that you know, 7, 7.5 range. Um, and so from there, we, s we split that composited feces and urine out into four different aliquots. And we had, of course, our control or our base, which was the unaltered manure. Uh, and so then we went forth and included uh, sulfuric acid into, or I should say we composited this manure then um, into a two to one ratio uh, with feces and urine, and then included or added sulfuric acid into this slurry to drop that pH down to seven and a half, six and a half, and five and a half, um, and then incubated from there to see, you know, if if it will actually work. If if through adding a strong acid, uh, which has been demonstrated over in Europe, that's a pretty typical typical way of trapping that uh, that nitrogen in the manure. Um, if we could do that and and show how much uh, ammonia volatilization, you know. Uh, loss we would have. Um, and so we were able to do that. It was about a 20% a at least um, decrease in ammonia after we, uh, after we incubated uh, and measured those, those air samples. Um, so we were able to, to demonstrate the fact that by biologically reducing that manure slurry through diet manipulation, we should be able to see some sort of uh, decrease in uh, nitrogen loss. How long do you incubate? incubate these things we incubated those for i believe five days okay. um and so through the incubation process um the manure is placed into um gallon jars gallon uh, glass jars and every 24 hours uh the the gas bags or the air collection bags are switched out um, and the air is sampled for 30 seconds every 30 minutes um, for those 24 hours and so after we switch off the bags, um, we're able to then measure using a, a gas measurement device and get the concentration of, of, the, part of the gas particles we're seeing. Okay. So one more thing that I want to add is the, in this in vitro trial, what we wanted to know is how much urine pH uh, should be decreased to sufficiently decrease the ammonia emission from manure. And, and, and that the, for the animal experiment, then you use that data to come up exactly. with your treatments. Yep, yep. Again, I don't care which of you, but now introduce the animal, the big picture, the treatments, uh, and what you did on the animal experiment. Do you want, to, do you want me to do you can You can start and I can, I can okay. add, I guess. So, so based on the result from in vitro experiment, we uh, conducted the in vivo experiment. Uh, we had uh, 20 Seven cows, mm -hmm. 27 cows, and uh, nine cows per treatment in a uh, randomized block design. We blocked the cows by uh, daisy milk parity, um, and then uh, we assigned the treatment to the cows randomly in each block. 
the dietary treatment was just a normal uh, DCAT diet. We didn't increase the DCAT when we uh, didn't. Uh, we just formulate the diet to meet all the requirement uh, in uh, also the other minerals, and that is about 200 milliequivalent milli uh, per kilogram of dry matter. That was the control, and then we decreased the DCAT about half uh, by adding uh, the uh, commercial product, uh, mainly ammonium chloride. Um, to 100 milliequivalent milliequivalent per kilogram of dry matter, and then the last treatment was uh, we decreased the decay further to uh, pretty close to the zero uh, of milliequivalent of kilogram of dry matter. Our target was about 50 or uh, between 10 and 50, but uh, uh, after we analyzed the samples, after we finished the experiment sample analysis, we calculated decay of the diet. And that was the uh, actual decat that we got for this our treatment. Mm -hmm. And then, because this is ammonium chloride, and you're measuring ammonia, how did you adjust for that? Because that's going to yeah, that's good your, uh, uh, point. So if we provide ammonium chloride, that provide uh, the additional nitrogen compared to other uh, uh, non-ammonia nitrogen uh, to the diet. So we tried to include urea uh, for other treatment to balance out RDP and RUP concentration uh, in the diet. So I'm not saying uh, there is uh, exactly the same effect between urea and ammonia, but I think uh, that's the, uh, the best uh, uh, approach that we can do to balance out the diet. I think it's also important, these were very high corn silage diets, so pretty I won't say low, but marginal in potassium, yep. which I think had some effects on your results. Right, right, that's true. And then, yeah, if you want to kind of briefly go over the production data first, and then we'll spend a little more time on the ammonia and, and digestibility data. Sure. Um, so with the uh, with the production data, the uh, milk fat was probably the most interesting result that we had. Uh, we were expecting some sort of decrease in milk production, especially with that low DCAD diet being near zero, uh, or at least, and then also some milk fat depression probably. However, we saw milk fat depression across all three diets, something definitely not expected, especially with that, that high DCAD or, you know, typical DCAD type diet. Um, there were some numerical decreases in overall milk production, um, but that also went along with the uh, numerical decrease in the dry matter intake. This, uh, the fats were really low. I mean, effectively it, made yeah. skim milk. <laughs> but you know, you look at the diet on paper, and it looks just fine and dandy. Right. So. Right. So I uh, we actually uh, changed it, uh, part of the discussion uh, during the review process. I think like included that description in there. What we found at the time, I look at the uh, milk fat content of the hard diet in our research center, and they're all low. So I thought that something is wrong. So what we found is the fat supplement that we used, uh, basically it, uh, uh, the, that sup fat supplement should include some linoleic acid. I knew that, but the, the concentration should be pretty low. But when I contact the company, they send me the, um, the, the uh, fatty acid profile of the supplement over the month, last kind of a year, every month analysis data. And it, that their, their, their linoleic acid concentration in the sep, sup, fat supplement was just, just like fluctuating. And then when we used that supplement, the linoleic acid concentration was huge. So I think that's a part of the reason why we saw the uh, milk fat depression in our heart diet, uh, heart, uh, in our research center and in our experiment. And also another reason is that we use the very high corn silage diet. So the, the high corn silage diet, just for those of you that are listening, the, uh, or the, excuse me, the high DCAD diet, the milk fat percent was 2.52%. So they, they were all quite low. Yes. And then uh, again, kind of summarize the, the so no effect on milk fat, but treat no treatment effect on milk fat. What else did you find on? Uh, one more thing that I want to add in terms of milk fat. Uh, if we didn't have that problem that caused the milk fat depression for all cows, if we had just the normal fat, 
and maybe the milk fat uh, the decrease by the low decat diet might have been uh, larger. So probably all cows had very low milk fat. That's why some of the effect of low decat was masked. Um, so just want to point it out. Okay. So what, what else did you find again with respect to treatment now on production data? Um, you know, I in looking at some of the results, um, there's always that uh, that trans ten shift. So we have, saw that CLA. Um, in the milk fat, um, and that I believe tended to increase uh, with the decrease in DCAD. Yeah. Um, so essentially, as that DCAD dropped, there were more trans 10 shifts. Mm -hmm. And on milk and protein and intake, what did you find on those? Intake decreased, or I should say, dry, or are you talking about fatty acid intake? No, dry matter. Dry matter intake. So dry matter intake, um, it wasn't statistically different among the treatments. However, there was a numerical decrease by about a kilogram mm -hmm. from that highest decad down to the lowest. Um, and so that, you know, we can't necessarily attribute it to uh, the low decad itself. Um, but then that was also paired with a numerical decrease in milk fat production um, by about a, a couple of kilograms from that high to low decad. Don't we kind of, with a 200 equivalent D change in DCAD is it is that about the expected drop in BMI no, or I would have expected a little bit more um, you know typically you read that cows are going to sort against that anionic salt anionic grain mix um, and that wasn't the case even in when we um, or I should say when I went through the refusals and separated that out and, and did a, a particle separation on it that wasn't necessarily the case either um, and looking at some of the other uh, references that we used, there there was a numerical uh, difference between a couple of different chloride supplements. Um, and so the chloride supplement we used in this paper had the higher of the of the numerical um, dry matter intakes. And so we were hoping that it, it wouldn't drop intake as much as some of the other supplements that could be used. And the intakes were pretty good, I think, across mm -hmm. the board. Mm -hmm. And then what about uh, milk and energy-corrected milk? What did treatment do to those? Jan, I don't know if you want to take over so on that one a little bit. Milk yield, uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, uh, milk yield was decreased numerically, and energy-corrected milk decreased significantly. It's just because of milk fat, as, I just, uh, as we discussed uh, earlier. Um, milk yield, again, uh, there are several factors, uh, the potentials that uh, we can talk about, uh, about numerical decrease in milk yield. This is it's not statistically different, so maybe it's nothing. But maybe if we used more cows, it was significant. Uh, I don't know, but it's possible. Based on the meta-analysis published, uh, there is a clear relationship between DK level and uh, dry matter intake or milk yield. So, uh, and we uh, had a uh, uh, numerical decrease in milk uh, dry matter intake as well. This is part of the reason why we saw the numerical decrease in milk yield. But probably, again, uh, we used only nine cows, which is probably the, uh, doesn't ha didn't have enough power uh, to look at all the significant differences clearly. So if we used more cows, it would have been uh, uh, significant. But I cannot, uh, uh, this is my guess. I think, you know, what those meta-analyses you're talking about, if, if you limit it to lactating cows, almost every experiment increase DCAD. You decrease DCAD. Do you, do you think that could make it different than, than these other experiments? Um, so the reason uh, why we started uh, with this concept is actually this is a second experiment. We conducted another preliminary experiment with even less number of cows to see if there is really a significant, a huge drop in dry matter intake or milk yield uh, by decreasing uh, DCAT in a diet. Uh, we didn't see much difference in dry matter intake and milk yield. That's why we uh, uh, started another, uh, tried another experiment. When I look at the meta-analysis or other designed experiment in the literature, um, actually, uh, quite a bit of papers didn't see any significant differences in production uh, when they decreased, when they compared the actually increased DCAT or when they decreased the DCAT as a negative control. So uh, maybe 
uh, there is something that we don't uh, know about DCAP. So, uh, and also we, I saw that we saw the opportunity to reduce the ammonia emission from manure, which is very uh, good benefit if that is possible. So um, uh, we try to understand uh, if really how much uh, deca decreasing decad uh, negatively affect the production and then how much that decreased ammonia emission from manure. That's what we wanted to figure out. Well, now let's get to the, the meat of this paper and that's the ammonia. What, what did you find there? Cumulatively, there, there weren't any significant differences. Um, I believe the for the animal experiment, day one was the only day that had differences among the treatments itself. Um, but cumulative emissions, there wasn't quite the decrease we were expecting. It was about a 15 percentage point decrease, um, which was lower than some of the previous experiments. Um, the other ones done in our lab were showing, you know, 30 to 40 percent. Um, so we were hoping to, to get at least to 20, um, but we didn't quite reach it. Um, and so, of course, we didn't reach quite with that uh, in vitro work con proof concept trial showed either. How much, again, on the, and this is still lab scale, on a farm scale, what would 15, if you save 15% of the ammonia, what, do you have an idea of what we're talking about here? Well, I, I would have to do some calculations, okay. of course. Um, but right now, I mean, nitrogen's a dollar a pound. Um, so keeping as much in the manure as we could would be highly beneficial. But in, again, I, I don't know if you know the answer or not. I don't. Um, <laughs> over a five or six day period on a farm under normal conditions, how much ammonia is it? Half the ammonia or half the nitrogen? Or what loss of nitrogen are we talking in? So manure. if you if you broadcast apply manure, um, not necessarily in storage, but if you broadcast apply manure on fields, you're losing at least forty percent of the of the nitrogen in that slurry. Okay, so fifteen percent could be a could, lot of pounds. Yeah, it's, it could. it's a lot of decrease. Uh, we didn't see the significant difference because of a lot of other factors that we discussed in the paper. But fifteen percent decrease in ammonia emission is a huge decrease. It's a huge uh, decrease and benefit uh, for uh, environmentally. Um, for example, uh, it can decrease the, it can first of all increase the manure value and also that can decrease the, the all, all the farm smells, not all but uh, a part of the farm smell can be decreased by reducing ammonia emission as well. And then ammonia volatilization also um, has an impact on uh, air quality. Uh, th those are all local issues and water quality. Uh, in terms, uh, instead of uh, word, uh, the problem. So, but it is also very important. And 15% decreased with diet manipulation uh, is a huge impact. Uh, but we didn't see the significant difference because there are several factors. Uh, but uh, if I have a chance, I'll talk about it later. You know, I'm curious. Uh, the, with the in vitro uh, study, is that a viable method of uh, reducing the volatility of nitrogen? Um, I say it cannot, uh, that in vitro cannot, uh, the rear situation, it's not rear, this doesn't represent a rear farm. But at least we can compare it, uh, uh, if this uh, strategy can increase or decrease the gas emissions from manure. The quantified ammonia emission probably doesn't match with the, the ammonia emission from rear farm. Um, but at least the ranking purpose, uh, we can do that. So there, there is a paper um, that talks about different strategies of nitrogen retention uh, using strong acids and other manure amendments. And sulfuric acid is the one that's most highly rated. Um, I believe it's over in Denmark and, and the Netherlands that they're doing this. Um, and so there's a few different ways that they can effectively add this this amendment in um, so it can be you know at the storage level or it can even be at field application to right. try to retain some of that nitrogen. And what would be the advantages of doing it in vivo versus that way? Well uh, storage would be one thing you don't have okay. to handle those strong acids yourself um, but if you were also to, to try to add those amendments to the manure slurry uh, whether, whether in storage or at field application you're gonna have to have some extra capital lying around yeah. to you know, improve your buildings, improve your manure storage, as well as purchase more equipment. Yeah, yeah good point. Yeah, and the, sa the safety of these acids, handling these acids, <laughs> is really important. I mean, we handle them in the lab, and you can't believe what we have to do. You spill a drop on you, and you're, you're going to be in trouble. So 
I don't think it's a viable practical thing because of safety issues. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. So the um, so even the high decad diet, there there were, there were no buffers added to any of these diets, correct? No. No. So uh, we didn't include the buffer. Um, uh, I, I know uh, in practice, uh, many people include the buffer uh, to increase the decat of the lactating cow diet, um, but uh, we didn't include those. So that brings up a, if, you, if, if you do add buffer, you increase decat from 200 to 250 or 300, do you think you, that would increase ammonia or are you already at a pH where it's not going to make it worse? Uh, Probably it's the it's pretty much the same. That okay. doesn't change the urine pH much. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, increasing decaf from uh, uh, 200 uh, to 300 or 350, 400 that doesn't change the urine pH. Where, where do you think you have to be to get a a a a, a, a respectable drop in ammonia without doing too much damage to the production of the cow? Where, where do you think is a good number? I don't know, uh, but. Uh, I think uh, still there is opportunity with DCAT. Uh, 100 or 50 or 75, we used uh, zero, almost zero DCAT, which mm -hmm. uh, definitely <coughs> decreased the product, negatively affect the production. But if we can have 50 or 75, if that doesn't affect production much or no production uh, negative effect on production, but if, if we can increase uh, volume of urine, with that uh, uh, low pH, uh, urine with a low pH, then we have more opportunity to reduce ammonia emission. The thing is, the feces has a pH as well, mm -hmm. uh, seven, seven or 7.5, depending yeah. on what we feed, uh, it changes slightly. Um, because of fecal pH, there is, not, uh, there is a range that we can reduce the manure mm -hmm. pH with urine. Um, so that's quite uh, challenging. So if we can increase the urine volume by decreasing urine pH, there is more opportunity to do that. But we definitely don't want to uh, give a negative effect on production. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Uh, within that, uh, we want to try something else to reduce uh, manure pH. So what's the, what's the typical ratio of feces to urine in manure? So when I was a graduate student, we, I always used, I didn't estimate it fecal volume and urine volume to incubate the manure. I did a lot of manure incubation work before. We always assumed the uh, ratio is 1.7 to 1, feces to uh, urine, uh, the, the as, as is basis. And I thought that was true. Uh, and then after I did a lot of experiment, it's quite valuable. Uh, and then we found that uh, between cows, the ratio is pretty variable, and what we got was not close to 1.7 to 1, or even 2.2 to 1. So, you know, with you know, with as cows produce more, they drink a lot more, and it has to either go out and milk or elsewhere. And that ratio, uh, cows are increasing urine production more than fecal production. So that ratio should actually be widening. Um, and that brings, you know, one, one of the main drivers of urine volume still is cations. Mm -hmm. sodium, and, sodium and potassium are equal, but there's a lot more variation in potassium. So if you wanted to get these cows to, I'll be polite, urinate more, <laughs> um, you could have fed a lot of, say, K-chloride. Yeah. And that would have been neutral on decad. Do you think, and it would have increased urine volume, no question. Do you think that would have made it a more positive or the decad having a bigger effect? Um, I don't know uh, if potassium chloride have negative effect, uh, effect on dry matter intake. I think I saw some papers about uh, intake problem, palatability problem with the potassium chloride. I don't know exactly, I, I don't remember exactly, but uh, there was some uh, concern in old uh, paper, uh, the, the classic papers. But if that doesn't uh, affect dry matter intake, uh, or just, I mean, I'm, I'm talking of just the palatability issue or something else. If that doesn't affect the dry matter intake, then we can uh, include that increased potassium level uh, without changing decat by feeding potassium chloride, and then decrease decat with ammonium chloride or something like that. That's another thing that we can try. Uh, has opportunity as well. So salt will do, sodium chloride will do the same thing. Yeah, right, right. Mm -hmm. um, 
But again, this adds cost. All this is adding cost. So, yeah. do you think this is economically viable? At with additional, you know, right now this is still early research. But do you think this could be? So we saw the quite a negative production production effect with this strategy. So I'm not. I, I at this point at, at this moment I I say no. Uh, this is not practically uh, effective. Uh, we can probably next five or ten years we can improve this strategy uh, with a slightly different approach. Uh, if that works, maybe it can be practical. But at this moment, it's not practical as far as it harmed the uh, production of cows. No, I think eventually. I think we all think this is eventually ammonia emission may be taxed or regulated, or there'll be an economic cost to. Getting rid. So would that change the economics then? If all of a sudden it costs you money if you lose X amount of ammonia? Um, I think uh, if we can capture the ammonia in manure, if we use this manure as fertilizer and that works well uh, for crops, uh, then definitely it, there is a positive aspect for that. Problem is, uh, I don't know if producers can recognize that benefit. Uh, if 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 they see that and they recognize it, yes, probably it's a benefit. Uh, decreasing ammonia is is is, is very important. Um, but I don't know how much uh, uh, this concept or capturing manure with uh, more ammonia change the crop growth. Uh, that's another area that uh, we need to look at. I've been asking most of the questions. I only got one more. Um, you know, you use chloride as the anion, but do you think you'd have got the same thing if you used a sulfate salt, a sulfate uh, anion? Or Say again? You know, you use chloride to, to lower decad. Yep, yep. Do you think you'd have seen about the same thing um, if you use sulfates? So uh, we can have, uh, we can change the decad uh, equally by using uh, sulfur and chloride, uh, theoretically. But uh, their uh, digestibility or absorption is different. Uh, I believe sulfur has less digest absorbable. Uh, and I don't know exactly if there is the same effect uh, when they appeared in blood uh, for to, to increase hydrogen ion and decrease the urine pH. I don't know if there is exactly the same effect between sulfur and chloride. Um, because if I just think uh, sulfur has less digestible, then I think uh, chloride is the best way to uh, change urine pH quickly uh, compared to sulfur. Would feeding these high sulfur, there's mineral antagonism, all that, I don't want to talk about that, but would, you know, these cows will excrete a lot more sulfur in manure, yeah. mostly fecal. Is that an environmental issue then too? So there are two things. Uh, if we increase sulfur, sulfur itself is toxic in the room, and that's one thing that we need to probably think about if we want to increase sulfur content to decrease decad. Another thing is uh, sulfur concentration in manure. Um, so if we increase sulfur concentration, it increases hydrogen sulfide emission. That might be another toxic gas that we can have in the dairy farm. Um, but uh, hydrogen sulfide emission from manure is pretty small. I don't know if that emission is going to be pretty toxic for uh, workers or uh, cows in the farm. I'm not sure. Um, but it inc definitely increases hydrogen sulfide emission. Another thing is, as a manure value, um, there is a studies uh, agronomic studies uh, starting uh, around uh, try to increase the sulfur uh, supply w uh, when they apply the fertilizer because of uh, a lack of sulfur concentration in soils. If that uh, sulfur is really uh, need, need, needed uh, for crop growth, uh, then uh, maybe in terms of manure value, uh, having more sulfur in manure uh, might be beneficial, but I'm not sure. You had mentioned that you don't think this is a, at least near term, a viable method for reducing nitrogen volatility, and but that maybe five years down the road you might uh, alter your methodology. What might those alterations be? Uh, um, so my, uh, what I want to actually do is drag treatment to manure to reduce gas emissions. That is the most effective way. 
Okay. But prior to acidification or using some enzymes or uh, applying some uh, microorganisms, there are many things that we can do to reduce gas emission from manure. Problem is, uh, I don't think people want to spend money to do the to do something with manure. Mm -hmm. um, if there is a state level support or federal level support, I or I encourage to uh, do something to physically do something with manure to reduce gas emission, uh, not not diet manipulation. Because of no support for producers, we are trying to do the diet manipulation to decrease the gas emission, which is the cheap, cheap way, <laughs> not expensive, and cheap is the way to do. Mm -hmm. And do you have plans currently, research plans to address that? Uh, we are doing some, uh, uh, the using some um, uh, distress grains uh, to do uh, something to manipulate the manure uh, characteristic to reduce ammonia. And we tried DCAT. And I like to try different levels of DCAT, uh, not very low. <laughs> so I want to try some uh, different levels as well if I have fund mm -hmm. <laughs> for that. Um, yeah, we are going to keep trying to do some diet manipulation to reduce uh, gas emission from manure. So you mentioned earlier that the linoleic acid content of the diets were higher than than you uh, expected. Yep. Were the the other uh, dietary nutrient levels? Did they were, did they come out the way you expected, or were any of the others different than you were expecting? I think uh, crude protein level was slightly different, but it was in the expected <coughs> range. Um, and other than that, it was pretty close. I mean, the the lowest decad, we were trying to shoot for that 50 range, but it ended up being lower. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't know you mentioned, but the, these were 16% protein diets just for the audience. Yep. And were the fatty acids in a rumen inert form? or? It was a mixture between uh, uh, vegetable fat and animal fat. Mm -hmm. and some of the, fat so, uh, the fatty acids were uh, on, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. Okay. So was the corn silage higher in linoleic acid content than you were expecting? So that's an interesting aspect of it because uh, there is a paper that correlates starch concentration in corn silage along with linoleic acid concentration in, in the silage. Um, and that's out of, uh, I believe it's Penn State. Um, and so essentially with high, high starch corn silage diets, you're also going to have an increased concentration of linoleic acid in the diet, or at least in that silage. Um, and so when, when our corn silage is measuring 35, 36% starch, we expected quite a bit more linoleic acid. Um, after, after we had found that paper, uh, you know, we expected a higher linoleic acid concentration than we were initially banking on. Bill, you mentioned sulfur earlier. So where should we be balancing sulfur in our lactating diets? Point two. <laughs> uh, there's uh, 0.25 tops. There's no benefit to feeding more, and there's a lot of risk to feeding more. So 0.2 is a very good number. So, so when you added the ammonium chloride to the diets, you you um, reduced urea. Is right. the is the um, the rate of degradation of urea and ammonium chloride the same? I believe uh, urea uh, hydrolysis to two units of ammonia in the room is very fast, uh, as far as I know. Um, but I don't know. I, I didn't. Uh, I was, uh, there's no way that we I can watch it how that is degraded right. and utilized. But uh, their hydrolysis should be very fast in the rumen by microbes. And we assume uh, it will be pretty similar. Uh, you know, you on the, on the high DCAD, the one without ammonium chloride, you had half a percent urea, which is pretty high. And what amazed me is you had really good milk fats or milk proteins. Yeah, terrible milk fats, but for all that urea, those are pretty good milk proteins you had for for across the board all treatments. Yep, 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 yep. So you did you did see a milk protein percent response in the animals? Can you can you describe what you saw there? Well, 
I, I guess I'm not remembering the protein results as much as I'm remembering the fats. Um, I believe there was a, was it a, an increase in protein? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a linear increase in milk mm-hmm. protein percent as you lower decan. Mm-hmm. But I think but, but, uh, protein but, yield uh, was not uh, significantly different. Right. Is that right? Yeah, no, no, no effect on right, protein right. yield, though. So that is pretty much uh, telling us uh, pretty much um, dilution effect, probably. We have less decreasing, numerically decreasing milk yield, and then uh, uh, it has a high concentration of protein, so then uh, the protein synthesis is about the same between the treatments. So the other part of the paper I found interesting was where you were monitoring the urine pH levels. So you, you looked at them throughout the day. So how many times a day were you checking urine pHs, do you remember? So throughout, we were measuring pH once a week until that last week of data collection. And then at that point, we were measuring, I believe, every six hours. Uh, we were taking a look at urine pH and collecting urine and collecting feces to make that final composite. Um, and, and so the... The measurement of pH at time of collection was even different from the time of incubation. Um, and so we attributed that to the freeze-thaw process. There's natural buffering effects in the urine pH. Um, and interestingly enough, that came from a, a human science paper uh, from, from urine samples in that way. Uh, essentially, that thawing process allowed the urine to essentially buffer itself and increase the pH. So. The diurnal variation really wasn't that dramatic, um, but you did see some week-to-week differences in the in the low decad diet, correct? Mm-hmm. It, it dropped and then it kind of stabilized itself. And those those week three and four would pop back up for the low decad. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that suggests maybe they weren't getting the decad you thought, or did you sample the the feeds enough to? So we. <clears throat> I think uh, the problem was uh, the the dairy uh, ordered the grain mix uh, every other week, something like that. And always there is a variation between batch uh, uh, that they make at the feed mill. I think that is a part of the problem. That's why we have uh, increased uh, dec- huge decrease in uh, urine pH and then stays there and then increase a little bit and then uh, the decrease back uh, down. Uh, that's that's how I think what what that happened. I do remember taking a look at some of those monthly composite samples, and there was one that was a little bit higher than what I was expecting. So that was likely during that week three and four. It's time for last call because I am out of a beer. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> I kept looking over at the bartender; he wasn't moving. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, they they flickered the lights. So that is last call. And with that, we're going to ask you guys one final question. If you'd share with the audience, um, any practical implications uh, from the research, and and if so, where, where are we going to go with this going forward? And I think you've kind of touched on that, Dr. Lee, but uh, maybe just kind of put a bow on this. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit balchem.com to learn more. Why don't we start with uh, you, Bill? Well, like I started, um, environmental issues are only going to increase. Um, in the past, you know, for ammonia, reducing ammonia, the goal, we always just said feed less protein, and which is good, but there's some disadvantage to that too. So these ideas of whether they work perfectly or not, again, it just gives us a bigger toolbox of ways to reduce ammonia. So I think in the future, things like this may become even more important. So what, what, uh, one thing that I want to add uh, to the Bill's point, uh, resist, reducing protein level in the diet always works to reduce the ammonia emission, but that also decreases the manure value as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just don't have uh, more ammonia emission from manure. Um, but what I think is uh, recently uh, our goal is to improve the sustainability of dairy production. Uh, when we talk about sustainability, economically viable, uh, the dairy production, and also environmentally friendly, and then uh, 
uh, we have to maintain the production. Uh, there are many things, but my focus is to uh, maintain the uh, production level uh, with uh, decreasing environmental impact. Uh, the goal to, to do that, uh, the, what we need to do to, is to improve efficiency of diet uh, nutrient utilization so we can have less uh, nutrient excretion um, but maintaining the production, uh, which is uh, the research goal that I have. Uh, if that works, it will be uh, pretty uh, practical. Clay? I think, you know, I think this is really important right now, taking, looking at the, the cost of fertilizer right now. The cost of, of nitrogen fertilizer is extremely high. So if we can retain more of that nitrogen in the field, that's, that's a huge benefit now. Very well. Haley, going to give you the final comments. Sure thing. Um, so a lot of what I'm thinking has already been said, so I won't necessarily echo it. Um, but I think a natural next step in research would be a, a field trial and trying to grow some of these crops, maybe not necessarily with a chloride-supplemented diet, but especially those that um, are using sulfur to, to decrease that decad, um, especially for some of those soils that are sulfur deficient. Now that I'm working in extension, I'm looking a lot at the whole farm model. I'm helping a lot with agronomic uh, areas that I wasn't doing necessarily before. And so just trying to get that whole umbrella approach just to see, you know, how it comes full circle would really be important. Mm -hmm. Super. Bill, this is another good one. I want to thank you very much. Uh, you did a great job today. Uh, brought a nice paper for us to look at. Uh, Dr. Lee, first time here at the Real Science Exchange. Look forward to having you back again. <laughs> Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, enjoyed having you here today. Haley, uh, you were a great guest. Uh, <laughs> the industry's in great hands. You're, you're a very uh, intelligent young lady, and so we really appreciate you having, having you here again. Uh, having you here today and hopefully having you here again sometime. I also want to thank our uh, loyal listeners for uh, joining us once again here at the Real Science Exchange at the table. Uh, hope you learned something. Hope you had some fun and we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars. Mm -hmm.